0: How many of you loved your first car? First car. Did you love your first car? Loved my first car. My first car was a beautiful 1984 Chevy S10 pickup. It's a five-speed. It had four-wheel drive. The thing was East in the snow. I've taken it off. I took it off-roading when I was in high school, which is probably why I discovered an axle broke when I was driving 65 down the Pennsylvania Turnpike, which was exciting. And I never told my father about the off-roading before he paid for the axle getting repaired. Smart move there for me. Uh, this was one ugly truck. In the 80s, they were just they produce some, some pretty awful vehicles, but I loved it. And when I moved to New England back in 2010, like I drove this thing all the way up here and it had like an overheating problem. So I would have to drive up, pull over, wait for the car to cool down, keep driving, pull over. It eventually started to, the seal around the windshield begin to go. So I would travel with a towel in the front seat and when it would, start to rain, I would have to constantly wipe off my dashboard in my window, and the windshield wipers would decide to work sometimes. So that same towel would be used to stick my arm outside of the window and wipe like a windshield wiper, right? (laughs) And it kept deteriorating over time. I was living in Massachusetts, and I just hear this noise, and it's really early, and I'm like, what is that? It was my car. Somehow the wire to the horn shorted and would just not stop going off. So I had to go outside, like open the hood, like look under and just start pulling on things. So I eventually found the one with the horn and peace was restored to the neighborhood. Eventually that vehicle was traded in for a Volvo and then it was traded in for a CRV. I think we live in a consumeristic society and we're constantly urge to buy the next thing. After all, did you hear that the new iPhone 14 was out? It still has three ugly cameras on the back, but it takes more amazing photos than the iPhone before. And I'll be honest, I'm a sucker for those things as well. And apparently the whole United States is, which is why like when you go into the supermarket, you're already seeing Christmas candy, right? Right. There's Halloween candy, and then there's Christmas candy next to it. And the reason is, is because last year, one article I read, said that we spent $860 billion on Christmas. And yet, we have a very complicated relationship with things, don't we? We like them, but they're constantly letting us down. We we regularly chase after them but they routinely fail us. We attach so much happiness to them and they get us a little bit of happiness for a time, but that happiness wanes and wears off. You get the latest iPhone, the new one comes out and you're still making payments on the first one. The house you bought has a leaking roof where the furnace goes. The truck that you love, well it has a leaky windshield and a horn that doesn't work. The vacation that you saved up for, it rained every day. We have a hard relationship with things. Everything breaks down and we keep falling for stuff that keeps falling apart. Which makes me think maybe Puff Daddy was right. Mo' money, mo' problems. But if you've visited a church for the first time and you've, and you've, and you've gone, and you've—they started talking about money. You're like, "Oh no, we visited on the money week." <laughs> well, if you're a visitor today, I'm sorry, but you visited on the money week, and we're gonna—I'm throwing in like a one-time, uh, one-week sermon here on giving. And the reason I'm doing this and breaking from Genesis is because we've been doing a high-level flyover of Genesis. As you know, we haven't covered every single chapter in the book. We've not been able to. We would be there for multiple years. Um, and we're about to settle into a long sermon series on Luke, where instead of a, a, like a high flyover like we're doing of Genesis, we're going to actually be working passage by passage through the book of Luke, and that's going to last a long time. And we haven't talked about money in quite a long time. And so the elders do think it's necessary to discuss this because Jesus says more about money than anyone else in the Bible. And it would make sense that Jesus would say more about money because it's everywhere. It's everywhere. We just talked about a couple things, iPhones, fo- vacations, all that stuff. But every single election year we're going to hear about the national debt. We're going to we've already heard about inflation. Political campaigns have ran slogans on it. Read my lips, no new taxes. Bill Clinton, it's the economy, stupid. Money is what you and your spouse argue about all the time because she won't stop buying lattes and he keeps spending money on things without telling you first. And why do you even have a budget if nobody is gonna follow it? Causes us anxiety and not, that's not a bad thing. Like It's normal. Credit card bills don't stop coming. Medical bills keep showing up. Keep showing up months after you have the appointment, which makes it even more stressful. Utility costs are rising and on and on. And so it would make sense that the good shepherd, Jesus, would speak into this very present reality in our lives. So what I want to do this morning for the next 25, 30 minutes is I want us to think about money. I want us to let the Bible inform the way we view money and the way we view things because we live in the stingiest state in the country lowest on giving charitably. But God is calling us to so much more and I believe he wants us wants so much more for us. So we're going to look at a passage in the in the church in Corinth and we're going to see them living out Instructed to live out the gospel principles of generosity in their real day-to-day lives. And we're going to see that our money talks. It tells a story about what you think is important, about what you value, and about who you belong to and who you are serving. We're going to see that when grace changes your heart, It also changes your wallet. So with that, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. It's in the New Testament, partway through it, and we're gonna read the first four verses together. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, about the collection for the saints. Do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches. On the first day of the week, Each of you is to set something aside and save in keeping with how he is prospering so that no collections will need to be made when I come. When I arrive, I will send with letters those you recommend to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it is suitable for me to go as well, they will travel with me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's really easy to think that when we think of the early church, they must have had it all together. We've talked a little bit about this before, right? You got the apostles, they're still alive. They're people that were, they were actually with Jesus. So it's easy to imagine this church just holding hands, singing kumbaya. People are getting saved left and right. But what we discover when we open the pages of the Bible is that it's really not like that. That churches are particularly messy because there are sinners there. And wherever there are sinners... There is sin. These are particularly messy places. And the church in Corinth is a very messed up church. They got a lot of messy things going on. It was struggling. And this struggling, broken church writes a letter to the Apostle Paul about everything going on. We don't have that letter, but we do have what Paul wrote back, and that is First Corinthians. Now, as we get into this, And talk about money, and as we think about talking about money, anytime we talk about money as a church, there are four pitfalls that I want us to avoid. And the first pitfall is defensiveness. It's defensiveness. We are Americans, and even to add to that, we're New Englanders. And there are few things more private than money. would sooner tell someone of like a sin that we've been committing than share with them like our financial struggles or, or, or fi- where we are with our finances or how much we're giving or so forth. We'd, we'd rather donate an organ sometimes than like talk about money. And I understand, I get it. So we get defensive. I'm like, ah, uh, like that's closed. Like leave my wallet alone, right? We get defensive. But I wanna push back against that feeling and I wanna, let's let the Bible be willing to speak there and be willing to shape us. So let's not get defensive. The second thing I want us to avoid are delusions. In I want us to avoid delusional thinking. Here's what that looks like. Man, if I would just get that raise, I would start giving or I would start giving more or I would start giving in proportion to what God has me or if I just... Once I make this much money, I will be able to give. Because here's the truth. Those on the lowest end of the economic spectrum give 3.2% of their income away on average. All right? Now I know what you're thinking. That's not very high. But you should also know that that's, it's not as low as the wealthiest on the economic spectrum who give an average of 1.3% of their income away. So to think that if we just made more money, we would end up giving is, like, at least according to this stat, is delusional. It's not true. In fact, we tend to get more possessive with money, or money tends to get more possessive with us, It sinks its claws into us the more we make. The next thing I want to avoid is comparison. It's easy when we start talking about money to think, man, that because we give more that we could matter more. I have been in churches where people who gave a lot of money thought that they should be given more voice. And that's just, that's not, that's not the Bible. You don't get, you don't buy privilege. You don't buy authority. That's not how the church works. Generosity comes from the heart. But I want us to avoid the other way, that the other like comparison trap that says, man, I don't have a lot of money, so my giving really doesn't matter. And I just want to tell you that when I look in the pages of the Bible, those who are commended in the scriptures for their generosity are the poor, the poor widow who drops in what she has and trusts God that is who Jesus commends more than the wealthy person putting in their extra. Because giving is about the allegiance of our hearts more than it is about the quantity of our cash. And the last thing I want us to avoid is legalism that treats giving like a checkbox. We say, oh, I give my 10%. Check. I've done it. God doesn't get access to any more. I'm not going to be generous with any more. I have done my thing. And that, I just want us to avoid that legalism. But I also want us to avoid the legalism on the other side that feels burdened by that like 10% number that gets thrown around in churches so often that says, man, I don't, I don't know. Like I'm not, I'm not given regularly. I don't know how I can swing that. And so we just see that 10%. We're like, I can't reach that. And I just want to encourage you not to view this legalistically. And I want to try to Talk to you about just being generous with what God, in proportion to what God has given you. So now let's pivot to the text. We see that this church wrote to Paul about some questions about a collection. Now, if you're wondering what this collection is that Paul references right in verse 1, this, as far as we know, this was monies that was collected when Paul showed up that was to be given to the poor. (laughs) to those who needed financial assistance. This is, think of it like a benevolence fund. And from this short passage, especially in verse two, I want us to grab three principles that we can apply for our own life. This isn't gonna be a normal straight exegetical sermon, but there are three principles that highlight what a grace-shaped life looks like. (coughs) So first, a grace-shaped wallet gives regularly as worship. Right from the start, we see Paul seems to set aside the Lord's Day, that would have been Sunday, their gathering together, as a day for regular giving. This was obviously before a time when people could log in to their online banking, schedule checks, all that stuff. So Paul encourages that when the church gathers for worship, that they were supposed to set aside money as worship because giving is an act of worship to God. It's an act of declaring that God is worthy, that that everything I have belongs to him and that I am living in response to him. He's worthy of my time. He's worthy of my songs. He's worthy of me sitting and listening to his word preach, and he's worthy of my money. So Paul encourages regular giving as worship. And when it comes to money, we gotta view it as a matter of the heart. We have to view it connected to worship because Jesus, in the middle of his most famous sermon, said it was. He said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. This is so common. So many of us know this. Where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Where inflation takes away the value of your money. Don't store up Treasures on earth where your house seems to appreciate and depreciate. Don't store up treasures where you watch the stock market go up and down. There's nothing wrong with doing any of that stuff. We have a retirement fund too, but we're not investing our whole lives there. But Jesus says, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Giving and money is a matter of worship. It says something about who we are. And then he says, to make it even more clear, he says, no one can serve two masters since he'll either hate the one or be devoted to the other or he'll despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You can't do it. And whether you're rich, poor, middle class, unsure, all of us in this room knows what it's like to serve money. We know what it's like to feel controlled by our finances. We know what it's like to feel like we just got to keep earning more and that we never get enough. And Jesus says, you, just, you can't worship both. You have to choose. You can't do it you can only serve one or the other. And giving is a declaration that I am choosing to serve Jesus. One test for yourself, on which I do for myself too, on where your heart is in relation to generosity, is to watch your heart's reaction when there is an opportunity to be generous. Y'all like, like sometimes missionaries roll through churches and they're like, hey, we got this thing. We'd love, we're, we're raising some money for it. Or, or maybe we do like a little fundraiser for something like another ministry in town. Or maybe just see someone in need and you, you know they need help. And sometimes, do you ever watch your heart's reaction to that? Like, like sometimes our hearts are just like, oh, nope. Now's not the time. Can't do that right now. It's not in the budget right now. We haven't worked out. All of a sudden, your budget matters, right? It hasn't mattered before, but all of a sudden, you're like, eh, I don't know if I can give to that right now. But watch your heart's reaction. Do you do you recoil at an opportunity for generosity? Or do you say, I would love to give to that. I would love to be generous. Is this possible right now? And maybe it is, maybe it's not. I'm not telling you to guilt you. I'm just saying, like, what's your heart do when there are opportunities to be generous with the things that God has given you. Maybe it communicates who you're serving. Serving money? Or are you serving God because you can't serve both? And Paul urges the people of God to give in response to worship. Our money talks in a grace-shaped heart leads to a grace-shaped wallet. Which leads to our next point. A grace-shaped wallet gives strategically. If giving is an act of worship, it is also something that is to be done strategically. Paul writes, look at verse 2, on the first day of the week, each of you is to set something aside. So it seems that for some reason, just because of the distance probably, Paul is urging to just weekly, just set something aside. Every week is part of worship. And I love the honesty with which Paul writes. And the reason is this, because he doesn't want to do a big collection later. So that no collections will need to be made when I come. And I don't know all the pragmatic reasons Paul is thinking, but I can think of potentially one of them. Have you ever been in a situation where you were just like, ah, I know I'm supposed to give right now, but I really gotta, I got this coming up, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna borrow money from God. I'm going to take out a little loan from, from, from God, and I'm going, to, I'm going to pay back double next month or something like that. Have you ever done anything like that? Just me? Um, <laughs> and what happens? You either forget, you can't do it next month, and so Paul urges, just kind of a, be strategic about it. Set it aside. Now, Immediately when we start talking about money, we think, how much? Now, you should know that I believe that in the New Testament, that like 10% number that's thrown around, that's not required in the New Covenant under the law of Christ. Now, you, now some of you are just like, oh. <laughs> but here's what it does say in the Bible, that we're supposed to give generously and to give sacrificially. In fact, for most of us, for many of us, 10% is a good floor. For others of us, it might not be realistic right now. I had a seminary professor who used to say it this way, and I thought it was helpful. He said, if you're living the same lifestyle as someone who makes the same amount of money as you, you're probably not giving generously or sacrificially. And I, just, I, was, I remember sitting in my seminary class, and I was like, oh, Well, that's kind of hard. But that Jesus invites us to more. He's just inviting us to a generous disposition of the heart, one that is freed from the love of money, freed from serving money, because money is a terrible master. And he is inviting us to just place our treasures in him. River of Grace, we have lots of different ways to do this. You can give online. You can give with the app. You can give in the offering box over there. You can have a you can have a check mailed to the office. You can, you can use cash. There's all different ways to give, but we should be strategic about the way that we're doing it. Some, some, for some of us, that'll be regular, regularly once a week. For others of us, that'll be once a month. For some of us, we can sit down, we know what we make for the whole year, and we can say, hey, we're gonna automate the next so many months because we know how much we're making, and we believe God is calling us to give this much in this season, and do it that way, but we should be strategic about it, because when grace changes your heart, it also changes your wallet, which leads to our last point. Grace-shaped wallet gives in response. Giving, first thing, giving is a response to what God has given you in Christ. Again, on verse two, on the first day of the week, each of you is to set something aside and save in keeping with how he is prospering. So set something aside in proportion to what God has given you. How much has God given me? How much should I give? I'm going to set it aside in proportion to what he's given me. And it's really easy to just think about our own like Western American context when we read this. But I want to remind you that this is written in a time when people did not have excess funds. Like, they didn't have a latte fund. They didn't have, like, they weren't thinking about going to another continent for holiday. Like, that's just not what they did. They, they made enough money to usually get by. And Paul still is urging God's people to say, in proportion to what God has given you, live generously. So let that thing sink in a little bit. As God has prospered them, they're called to bless others. How much more should we, who've been given so much, give generously towards others in need into to his kingdom? What kind of difference could we make in the kingdom of God if we live generous lives, not just with our money, but also with our time? What injustices could be alleviated? What poverty could be helped? We're encouraged to live out of the abundance of what God has given us. When I was in college, I had the opportunity to go on a service trip to Trujillo, Honduras, which is a flight into San Pedro Sula and a nine-hour school bus ride um, all the way over to the coast, <clears throat> and I went to a church service there. You know, in many churches, some churches do giving boxes, some churches pass the plate, but in this particular church, I, they had a box placed, like, it would be right here, in, what, in the middle of the worship service, people would walk up to the front and drop money into it. And I, I remember being a little bit uncomfortable with it because, again, I'm, a, I'm an American. It's kind of an awkward thing to just walk up and, like, everyone's watching, you drop money in there. It's, that's a little bit weird for me. But I remember being so humbled by the fact that I had spent about a week with these people in, like, some of them had cardboard for walls in their houses. Others, like to feed other people, killed their own chickens, right? And would have to like raise more. Like I rem- and then here they are taking what little they had in proportion to what God has given them and joyfully dropping it in an offering box. I remember being kinda humbled by my own stinginess Because these people got it, that that they had God and they had everything and they gave out of what God had given them. It wasn't a lot, but it didn't matter. Their hearts belonged to Jesus and he was gonna take that and do something with it, something eternal. And I know he did. So we are called to give generously toward the mission of God because God wants to use that To expand his kingdom, we give in response to what God has given us. But second thing is, we give in response to who God is and what he has done for you in Christ. If you have your Bibles open on your lap, you'll be able to see that this passage comes right after one of the most glorious passages in all of Holy Scripture. And it is the passage talking about the resurrection of Christ in the guaranteed hope that we have in him. It is where those famous words are, death, where is your victory? Death, where is thy sting? Right, because Jesus conquered sin, and he conquered death. And it is right after Paul gets through this explosive chapter about the resurrection of Christ that one day we will experience in that re- Participate in that resurrection, Paul says. Okay, now about the collection, and it's stunning. Like, okay, in light of all the who God is, in light of what He's done for you in Jesus, in light of this good news that you will participate in the resurrection of the dead with Christ because of Him, in light of the fact that that death has been swallowed up in victory. I want to talk to you about the collection and why you should live generously. Because we have found it all in Jesus. It is a response to him. Our great savior has defeated Satan, sin, and death. And we have eternal life in him. And he has loosed us from being chained to serving money. One wise, retired pastor says this. Generous giving is the heart of the gospel. (laughs) Generous giving is a sign that Jesus is our joy. Generous giving is confidence that we will inherit the coming kingdom. And I love the way David put that because we have a God who gave, right? And when we give toward Jesus, it's a sign that he is our sure joy, that we're not finding joy in things, that we're finding more joy in him. And it is generous giving is confidence, That all that Jesus promises, we receive. So we live in response to that. So as we conclude, I want to give five practices to help us cultivate generosity. And I'm giving these now, and the sermon comes now, not because ROG is in, like, bad financial straits or anything like that. I do this because I think... our hearts need regularly tuned. We're in a good place as a church. I want to encourage us to continue to give generously in proportion to what God has given us. So here are five practices to cultivate generosity in your own heart. These come from a book um, called Finding Holy in the Suburbs. And uh, I know not all of us live in the suburbs, but I think these are all relevant. The, the first step is to evaluate your finances. Look at it. Look at your budget. If you don't have a budget, make one. If you don't know how to make a budget, reach out to me. I'll put you in touch with someone who does. And ask. Ask the question, where am I spending too much? Like, what does this say about my priorities? What does this say about what I value? And again, it's not wrong to like nice things. It's not wrong to do all that stuff. I'm just asking us to evaluate where those things are with our hearts and who are we serving. Ask, where could we... Where could we give more generously? In what way? The second thing is to meditate on the fact that God gave. Have you ever sat? Like, we don't often find time alone, but I would encourage you to find time alone and to think through that God gave. The famous John 3.16, God gave his one and only son. For God so loved the world, he gave. Like, what did that cost him? What was he doing? How do we live in response to that? I want to encourage you to reflect on a God who gives of himself. And third, pray to feel needy. It's so easy for those of us in the room that like hey, okay, we have a budget, it makes sense meet. We don't some of us don't have to worry about that. So we we might need this more than others. We forget that that we don't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps spiritually. That we are needy people, broken and lost. So pray to feel needy. Pray Pray that we would remember that we need God more than we need anything else. And that that should make us move towards compassion with those who are in need. Fourth, tithe your money and your time. Again, there's no... Explicit command, I don't think, to give 10%, but the principle remains. Give a portion of your income. Decide what that's going to be. Give until it hurts a little. And then tithe your time too. Ask, where am I where am I being selfish with my time? Your time and your money are connected. So where am I being selfish with my time? How can I give? Maybe maybe that means your family. Like, how can I give more to my family? How can I, how can I give more to those in need? How can I not be so selfish? How do I be generous, cultivate that in my heart? And fourth, commit, or sorry, fifth, commit to a habit that hurts. Just invite you to live self-sacrificially. We have a savior who humbled himself and became obedient to a cross, obedient to death. So I would invite you to live self-sacrificial lives for the good of others. Give yourself to something. Grace changed hearts produce grace-shaped wallets. Listen, I never wanna be that church that has the money sermon all the time. That's not my goal at all. But I do, I absolutely do want us to be a people that are shaped by the scriptures about how we relate to money and relate to things and what it says about our hearts. And I want us to be people who are so committed to Jesus that we are, that we are just, we're generous we're generous with who we are. We're generous with our time. We're generous with our money because we recognize that we have it all in Jesus. And I want us to imagine what it would be for our neighborhoods, what would it would be for us as a church if we lived and embraced the Jesus way of relating to things where we served him more than our stuff,